You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. What is racial righteousness, and what does it actually look like? How can followers of Christ walk a path of cultural compassion and understanding for the diversity of people from all types of diverse backgrounds in their daily lives? Today we speak with Greg Yee about racial righteousness and his work with The Journey to Mosaic. Join us as Greg shares his caring wisdom that flows from his own personal journey. Let's dive into this together. I want to welcome Greg Yee to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, George. Thanks. I thought maybe we could just start with a bit of your journey. Um, maybe just share a bit of your your background, your journey, you know, the cultural background you come from and how that's affected your faith and your life and what you do now. Maybe share the story of how you got to where you are now. Yeah. So my great-great-grandfather came over as a merchant to the island of Kauai. Eventually, my great-grandparents migrated over to the Bay Area. And so a lot of confirmation along the way, which ultimately led to training in Chicago. This would be after I got married. So my wife and I were there in Chicago, and we thought that we were heading back to the Bay Area to serve the Chinese church. That was my original call. But then we got intercepted by these church planters, and that actually led to us joining the Evangelical Covenant Church, who uh, at that time were pouring a lot of attention into racial righteousness, what we call it. We don't call it racial reconciliation, George, because reconciliation means you're returning something to what once was. And for a lot of ethnic minority groups here in our country, we don't really want to go back to what once was because what once was was not actually that great. Mm. And so we talk about racial righteousness, i.e. making things right between races, between peoples. And so the Covenant Church was big on racial righteousness and church planting, which is an incredible intersection for this Asian American church that came in. So that eventually led to you know other opportunities to serve in the denomination Associate Superintendent of the Pacific Southwest and the conference just south of us here, and then for the last nine plus years here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Just on that theme, there's a really amazing thing that you've been running, you've been a part of like breathing into life. It's called the Journey to Mosaic. For our listeners, could you kind of just describe what that is, the impact you're seeing through it, like maybe where it came from? Like, it just sounds so, it's such a bright spot. Yeah, you know, I mentioned this uh, attention to racial righteousness, and part of what grew out of that was a similar, what was the precursor trip called Sankofa. And Sankofa is a, uh, I keep forgetting, it's an East African or West African term that means you have to look back in order to move forward. And so the symbol of Sankofa for the Africans is this bird that is both looking backwards and looking forward. And so in order for us to move forward in racial righteousness, we can't just say, oh, let's forget about the past. We have to make amends. We have to have moments of reckoning for ourselves and and enlightenment and understanding how we can, not just sweeping things under the rug, but really addressing things that affect us. And so the Sankofa journey is really more of an African-American experience. So an African-American is paired up with somebody who's not African-American, and you are partners throughout the whole trip, four-day trip, bus trip. And it goes into the South and hits these historic and current significant spots, whether it be civil rights locations like the the George Pettit Bridge 
or it would go to like the MLK Museum or something like that. And we would watch videos, we'd have partner conversations, we have large group conversations. And it's supposed to be a safe time for the family to just talk, to have kind of like a family meeting, family trip together. And when I, when I went with my colleague who is a Latino, um, we had a very mixed experience. Like it was powerful to understand the African-American journey more. But we ourselves as ethnic minorities felt a little displaced because there was so much that was similar to our own journeys. So we came back and we talked to our boss, the superintendent at that time, and we said, hey, could we put together, like we, we, we want to continue to encourage folks to go to Sankofa, continue to support it, but could we have a sister journey called the Journey to Mosaic, eventually called the Journey to Mosaic, and that's a journey where the same idea, same setup, exact same setup, but instead of just the African-American journey, we do that journey plus the Latino, Asian-American, and uh, indigenous journey here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, actually, we, st we started in California. Wow. And so we did that, and leaders from this conference uh, here in the Seattle area came down on our pilot trip, and they started their own journey to Mosaic a year later. And so when I got here nine years ago, uh, it was still going strong and definitely a huge supporter of it. You know, things that we do are like going to Chinese Reconciliation Park. Yeah, yeah. Walk, walk us through, yeah. like like if we were on the journey, just like walk us through what that it, what, what would look like. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the best scenario is that you're paired up with somebody you know. So, you know, conversations can uh, happen after the trip. We set expectations at an orientation in the beginning of, of why we're doing this. And to not try to come up with solutions in four days, not to come up with some pithy biblical explanations even, you know, because we like to do that as church people, <laughs> but to actually, the goal is to sit in it and just to be family and to, 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 to create safe space to hear each other. Because this is such a lightning rod topic, especially in the last couple, three years, right, here in America and, and beyond. We as church people, we folks that are committed to each other, that are supposed to be about love, that are supposed to be about redemptive pathways, that are supposed to be about reconciliation, we should be able to find time and space to sit down and have some hard conversations, right? And not with the goal of making one feel guilty and shaming and that kind of thing, but again, safe space to just talk as family, talk about uh, what's real, what's not real and to come up with solutions together, but not on that weekend. Okay, so on the weekend, we do that orientation. We stop at Reconciliation Park to hear a little bit about the Chinese story. We stop at- Is that in Tacoma? That's in Tacoma, yep. Wow. Right on the waterfront. Uh, crazy history. Uh, we, we go into Seattle and we stop at the Nisei Veterans Hall and we hear a bit about the Japanese American experience, particularly as it relates to World War II. Internment in camps, camps. Ooh, yep. wow. Yep, all of that. And then um, we uh, go down to Portland to talk about um, Vanport neighborhood that was intentionally flooded and the African-Americans were kicked out of where they uh, had lived. Wow. And what was all behind that. Um, we head out towards the Yakima Nation on the other side of the mountains here. And we connect with brothers and sisters there and experience incredible hospitality. And we always do this over Veterans Day weekend here in Seattle because um, they have a Veterans Day powwow uh, there in the Yakima Nation. And George, it's crazy to go as a mostly non-native group, if you can imagine, 30, 40 people descending upon 
this big event in the Yakama Nation, food trucks and people in the regalia and lots of people, multi-generational, drum circles happening, all this stuff. And we come into this space feeling like we completely stuck out, feeling guilty because <laughs> we just probably just watched a video about yeah. you know? <laughs> But experiencing the absolute unconditional hospitality from the Yakama Nation and even inviting us into places of honor mm. during that time. Crazy. It's absolute craziness. And we also um, talked to one of our Latino churches, and um, we hear from uh, one of uh, their members and about his immigration story. That, that's been one stop. And we talk a little bit about the realities of uh, immigration uh, here in the United States. So we, we change it up a little bit here and there, depending on uh, what's available for the year. But that would be a very typical journey to Mosaic. And again, there's videos that are happening while on the bus. There's conversations that are going on. It's a powerful time. And we cap it off by worshiping at one of our multi-ethnic churches and share lunch together. So, That's incredible. Yeah. And I, I love, I mean, just some of the things that initially like hit me and resonate with me, like are more questions about, you know, just the, the transformative experience, but in an area topic, a conversation that can sometimes be very combative, argumentative where people can kind of be arguing on a level that's less experiential mm -hmm. and more like positional. Yeah. This seems to be a more experiential experience, a more learning oriented, educational oriented and story oriented experience. So what's some of the results that you've seen from people going through this journey? Incredible. Great question. So, you know, when people go through this, what happens is that a lot of times, most people on the journey will experience, they will come upon new things, things that they didn't know before. Why didn't I hear this in history class? Why didn't anybody, like I kind of knew about this. Maybe there's half a paragraph about this in, the, in our history books, but why didn't I hear this other story? Like it's amazing to me here in Tacoma, George, how many people don't know why Chinese Reconciliation Park is there? It's a beautiful park. But then when they start reading the information on the stones and on the, on, on the billboards, it's like, oh my gosh, what? <laughs> and there's a lot of that that happens. So just kind of an aha, what didn't we learn? So often we hear comments along the way. It's like, oh, these people too. We did that to these people too? <laughs> you know, just like, like how much, right, that is in our U.S. history. So th there's that. But it, it is an experiential focus, Right. It's taken what we know in our minds. This is what we're supposed to do with each other. We are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to be agents of reconciliation as Jesus made it right with us and the Father. <laughs> so we too should be ambassadors, agents of reconciliation, depending on what translation you read there in Corinthians. And we know these things, but they're so, um, they're so you know, they're just concepts. Um, what does that actually look like? The fact that God has you and me at this point in his, like if we believe in a sovereign God, so he has, George, he has you and me at this time in this place for a reason. He doesn't have us in first, first century China <laughs> or, or fifth century Africa. He's got us right here, right now in the U.S., here in the Pacific Northwest. Why? Mm. Right. And so we all, you know, I'm a firm believer that the best place to live uh, within my faith context, our faith context, is to stand at the intersection of our, the text, you know, what scripture says, what we believe to be true through scripture and the context. And our, what is our context? Our context is that we live in a racialized society. 
Now, there can be all kinds of debates. And if we take our cues from any news station or CRT or whatever is out there, right, then we're going to get sent a lot of different directions. But hey, let's just stick with scripture for the folks that follow Christ. Let's let's just stick with scripture and let's let's learn together what scripture says and understand how that intersects with our context. Because I think that's going to be the most fruitful, the most viable place that we can stand as the church. If we don't do this, then society is going to try to figure it out. Then we're counting on politicians or school districts or whoever else to try to figure this out. And they ultimately don't have the whole answer, right? Those are shadows of what we believe. But of what we believe uh, holy to happen is through Christ. And that means uh, that the church needs to be at the center of that. The church has been at the center of so much social change throughout history. And uh, no different for us today. Uh, we should be connected to this. Um, I'm forgetting the second part of your question. What? Are, yeah, you answered that. Yeah. That was really good. Mm. Um, the, as I'm here in the flow of, of what you're sharing, with your work, from your position, and if we are, as Christians are given this ministry of racial righteousness and reconciliation, working toward unity, building uh, that into our churches and into our communities, where are you seeing bright spots in churches and leaders yeah. catalyzing this kind of righteousness and reconciliation? Where maybe you seeing blind spots or or areas that kind of maybe feel a little bit of cringe, like, oh, we could maybe approach it a little bit better uh, when it comes to especially racial conversations. Right, right, right. So some bright spots. It's really, it's, it's affected both uh, the church and then just individual lives, right? And so there's many, many stories of churches that have, um, you know, they might be sharing campuses uh, with a, another church that is made up of folks from a different culture, uh, perhaps a different language. And um, it's really added to the quality of their relationship and understanding uh, power dynamics and communication and uh, conflict resolution and just the importance of being family together rather than just renter, rentee and what that might communicate in a structure and, and relationship. So a lot of great things like that. A uh, lot of friendships that have been built and partnerships and uh, in, in how to go deeper in, in mission uh, together uh, has been a lot of the fruit like within the church. People just having aha moments. I had somebody on my executive board that uh, was really skeptical, really, really skeptical. And it took, um, it's got to be like six, seven years later, maybe eight years later, he texts me randomly one day and he says, Greg, you're right. I was wrong. I'm waking up to see uh, these realities and I'm committed to, to make a difference. You know, just incredible stuff like that. In California, I had the uh, executive vice president of a large uh, medical company and he was so profoundly affected that it changed how he managed. It changed how he did work. It changed everything of what he did. And he just gave such a powerful testimony of that time and time again and was such a huge advocate for the journey to Mosaic. So a lot of neat things like that, George. It's been really great. It's only four days. And again, we're, we're encouraging folks not to come up with solutions because we need folks just to, to slow it down. Reflect. Reflect. You know, reflect on your feelings. Reflect on what's going through your mind. Listen. 
be slow to speak, you know, these kinds of things. So it's a journey for sure. Some of the challenges um, that, that we see, it's amazing to sit in some of these conversations and to, re and to watch invariably uh, folks that are in a social economic, uh, a social position, social location, that's the word I'm looking for, of usually being the first to speak or usually having a position that um, is more respected. It's amazing, invariably, we're in the middle of this, and usually those folks on these journeys are the first ones to speak, mm. you know? And that's the work to do, right? It's to understand, I need to learn, I need to be aware of who's in the room. Mm. And I need, to, I need to grow in my self-understanding of who I am in this place. What, who am I when I walk into this room? That's like the primary work for folks mm. to do. And, and sometimes people are really slow in doing it. It's really funny. There'll be church planters that come through, George. I'll run into an Asian-American church planter. I'm Asian-American. And uh, they want to plan a multi-ethnic church. Because everybody wants to plan a multi-ethnic church. <laughs> right, George? Don't you want to be a multi-ethnic church? Of course. All of us want to have multi-ethnic <laughs> churches. But at the end of the day, if I can put it, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, that's kind of the flavor of the month right now, right? And so everybody wants to do that. They might have some good biblical reasons, but have they done the work to understand what that actually means? And part of that work is your own work. So one of the first questions I ask to my fellow Asian Americans that are, that are church planters, I say, hey, bro, what does it mean to be Korean American, a Korean American male when you plant a multi-ethnic church, hmm. you know? And it's amazing to me what little I get back when people say that, you know? Who am I as a, a white male that is 50 years old when I come into this room? Who am I as an African-American woman who's 39 when I walk into this space? Doing that personal work of understanding your social location and understanding how others might be perceiving you, despite what you know to be true of yourself, but socially, how are you being received in this space? So that's, a, that's a, a big part of the work. And I think people like want to do this with one, let's do a racial reconciliation Sunday, or let's do a racial reconciliation sermon series or something like that. And that's great, but hopefully that's to kick off something bigger, mm. right? That's to tie into a greater work that's happening between now and, and, and later on. That includes relationships and ongoing conversations and ongoing safe spaces uh, to work through these things. So, those are moments, but they don't sustain movement right. long term if right. if there's not a commitment. Oh, that's really good. And I imagine the that's a powerful question. You know, are you aware of what you bring into the room and who you are when you walk in the room? And I imagine for myself that just that question makes me want to be gentler and quieter mm -hmm. and quieter and gentler. Yeah. Absolutely. What what happens when you see people get that, and what happens when you when you see people not get that? Yeah, I actually think when you slow down, the work actually speeds up. Mm. And when you try to be too aggressive, particularly if you're coming from a social location of power and position, then the work slows down. Because how many times have I been in a room as an Asian American male, and and I'll add maybe younger you know, in, in a room. And, and my, my internal social cue is to let my elders speak or despite elder or, or younger, just other people are going to talk before me, right? 
well, can you imagine talking about racial righteousness and having an Asian American that is not feeling safe to to speak or there's no cue or there's no invitation or there's it's not a setup. It's just this is what I experience every day. Mm. Right. This group always speaks first. I don't. Mm. Right. This group is always going to be valued more than me. Right. Rightly or wrongly. Right. That's just how I was socialized. Right. These are the cues that I got from my parents and my grandparents growing up. It has nothing to do with you as a person that I'm you know, in the same room with. Because I'm, I'm sure you absolutely respect me and you absolutely want to hear my voice. But there are these, these sociological things that are happening. And that's what I mean by mm. we live in a racialized society. And you could be from like majority culture yeah. and completely unaware of any of the di- dynamics you just talked about. Right, right. Because you're, you're super well-intended coming into it. Your heart is in the right place. Mm. But being able to do that work of understanding who you are coming into that room and making it like being quieter, <laughs> that's a great posture for all of us, right? And to be able to mutually um, create a space where everybody could speak and uh, we could learn from each other. Wow. Here's a few rapid fire questions for maybe someone who comes from this perspective or has friends and family members that might come to this from this perspective and they don't know how to, they don't know how to engage it. If someone has a question about critical race theory and they're, they're concerned, they've got family members concerned, they don't want to engage in any of these kind of conversations or maybe are afraid to, or just don't want to because they're afraid that it's going to be connected to this, um, secular philosophy, like many people will bring up something like critical race theory. What's your thoughts on that as, you know, Asian American Christian who's really trying to help people follow the way of Jesus? How do you help people that are struggling with uh, CRT? Yeah, I I would encourage folks to just not start there. (laughs) I know it's easy to point key words, you know, or something that somebody might be saying in this area, people in the church that might be something saying something in this area, and immediately say, oh, that sounds like CRT. Oh, they must be purporting, they must be pushing CRT. Just don't start there. I mean, there might be some folks that way, but I can only speak for our tribe here and, you know, what we're trying to do. At no point are we sitting down and looking at the CRT manual and, you know, starting there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting with scripture. And we're, we're just, like I was saying earlier, you know, we're just trying to see what God is calling us to as uh, ambassadors of reconciliation, as, as lovers of our neighbors and of folks that are praying for the kingdom to be, to be established here on earth as it is in heaven. You know, so what does it mean to reflect uh, Revelation 7? You know, mm. What does it mean to reflect the end of Revelations 20 and 21? Which is an image of... How, for anybody who yeah, doesn't, it's not yeah, familiar with that. Abso- yeah, absolutely. So Revelation 7 being the image of every tribe and nation and tongue gathering before the throne where Jesus is sitting and all of us worshiping him in our own ways. You know, we don't suddenly become some vanilla flavor whatever, you know, this this acultural whatever, but that in, in, in the end of Revelation in 2021, it talks about how uh, all the all the all the royalty of the world, all the nations of the world, all the languages—they'll be gathered. Like w- when everything is made right, that state is actually uh, expressed in the diversity of the peoples mm. of the earth. You know, like actual cultural treasures are right, part of that. Right, language and tribes and all of our cultural expressions. Like that's part of when things are right, it's being expressed. That's what's being allowed into into heaven, is mm. what twenty and twenty one says. So yeah, don't start there. 
it's an uncomfortable conversation and it's too easy to say, oh, that sounds like CRT. So I'm not going to engage it because it sounds like CRT. Don't let yourself be sucked into that. Start with what scripture says about racial righteousness. It's a bit of, can become a straw man. Yeah. And it can become something that is preventing you. Yeah. Yeah. It's too easy to shut it down that way. If you were to encourage somebody who was just starting on their racial righteousness journey or reconciliation, unity, however you'd, you know, frame that. Someone's just starting out on this journey in this conversation. Where would you encourage them to start? What would you encourage them to do as first steps? It depends on personality. Like some folks will do best by engaging a book first, you know, and there's um, a ton of books that uh, I could recommend here. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to leave some of those in the, in the show notes or something. But uh, others, you know, doing something experiential like a journey to mosaic, Maybe it's just getting together with some friends and, and committing to just having conversations, you know, diverse friends and having some conversations with each other. Those are great ways to engage it as well. I would just encourage you to think in these categories, and I get this from a fellow Covenant colleague uh, who wrote a book called, this is Brenda Salter McNeil's book, um, it's Roadway or Pathway to Reconciliation. And her, her quadrant model is you go from, from not knowing, not realizing that there's a problem, and you have to have some kind of catalytic moment to get you to awareness. And awareness grows to connections with each other. And connections grow to the last two quadrants really goes more towards like structural changes as far as power and, and, and who's in charge. In our denomination, uh, the Covenant Church, I think we've done well in the first and the last two, but the second one is the most difficult. And this is where I'm, where I'm going with your question. It's the connectional piece. It's when your people become my people and my people, your people, where we're getting to that like gut level of feeling it for each other. Mm, sense of like kinship. Kinship, right? Yeah. It's that instinct that happens when you are so deeply connected to somebody that you respond from your inner being of, oh my gosh. What is Greg thinking because of all of this anti-Asian hate that's been going on? And just the number of calls and emails and texts that I received during those months, those crazy months that we walked through because we're in relationship, you know, because uh, we've gone deeply with each other. So just having those relationships with people, investing in that is a great place to start too. Listening to podcasts, you know, other things like that. Those are great things to start. How have you handled, how has your family been impacted and how have, you tried to lead uh, during waves of anti-Asian uh, hatred and sentiment uh, nationally. That stuff's become come more to the front. So how have you dealt with some of the anti-Asian hatred and, and sentiment? Yeah, it was, I appreciate the question. It was, um, it was a tough journey. And part of it is you don't want to live in fear, but when it gets so close, you don't want to be naive as well. You know, and so we, we just have a, an older high schooler in the house uh, right now that, that remains. And during those um, those months, my wife takes walks with the neighbors and, you know, she was constantly thinking, is this safe? And it's not like we live in an unsafe neighborhood, but again, it just got so close. What happens when my son goes out? You know, what happens when we go out for dinner? Uh, what, what happens when we're driving? There was constantly this balance between you don't want to live in fear, you don't want to overreact, but at the same time, there is something profound that is happening in our society 
that we cannot be naive to. And so there were a lot of moments of lament, you know, connecting with other Asian American leaders and lamenting and finding solidarity, prayer, all these types of things. But there's no easy answer here, right? This is where we're at. It just takes one thing to get this thing turned sideways and suddenly Asian Americans throughout the country, <laughs> throughout the world, like this is happening in Canada and other places as well, are so deeply affected. This is, this is the craziness about race. We keep on thinking we're progressing, but it rears its ugly head. It's just under the surface and it rears its ugly head and it just takes one thing to provoke it. It could be somebody in office. It could be something like COVID. It could be something, whatever, you know, whatever might be going on. And who's the group that this is going to be focused on uh, this time? And until the church, you know, starts to talk about it, I think only the church has the power to change this. And it's followers of Christ that go out uh, in their places of influence that can change this. So I just, um, yeah, there's no easy answer there, George. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those things that you just kind of lean in. You know, when I talk to African-Americans and story after story of things happening in their, in their, in their group, and you just kind of sit there, it's like, how, how much longer can you take? And it's like, this is just the reality and you just have to lean in, right? You can't let it overwhelm you and paralyze you. But at the same time, you can't be naive and, and you have to keep safe and fight for change, you know. And how much more powerful that is if we can do that in solidarity, like across racial groups. That would be amazing. I just want to thank you for sharing, especially from a place of vulnerability and actual personal pain. That's, I know that's probably not easy. So thank you for sharing from your own experience. And thanks for doing this. Thanks for opening up the conversation and... I hope this uh, provokes more for people. Greg, would you mind just walking us out on how your own family has been impacted by some of the systemic ills, the, the systemic sins of the past? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my great-great-grandfather immigrated to the island of Kauai as a single guy. And unlike most of the Chinese that were coming to America, he actually was a very wealthy merchant. And my cousins there in Hawaii were able to dig up his paperwork many years ago. And and uh, he was a rich dude. <laughs> uh, he was doing well. He owned a lot of common stock. And it showed how much he traded every year. So he established himself there on Kauai. But he was not married. And so he went back to China. He immigrated uh, in the, um, the late 1870s. So he went back to China and he got married to my great-great-grandmother. And he came back. But it was post-1882. And 1882 is when we as a country passed, for the very first time, a ban on allowing uh, a specific ethnic group in, a specific uh, cultural group in. And we passed the Chinese Exclusion Act okay, of 1882. It's, it's literally called that? It's literally called that. We as a country passed that. And uh, it was being driven by a lot of the yellow peril. Uh, you probably read that in your U.S. history books. Um, a lot of the labor leaders at the time and politicians, uh, they were running on campaigns of uh, anti-Asian hate and let's drive the Chinese out. The Chinese are the ones taking all of our jobs, you know, this kind of thing. So all of that was happening in the late 1800s. And in 1882, we passed that law. And just for a quick time out, there's sometimes people, I, know, I have you know, even had folks I know that struggle with like the term like systemic sin, mm -hmm. institutional sin. 
Would this be an example of institutional or systemic racism? Like, would this fall in that bucket, what you're saying right here as an example? Absolutely. So certainly for the Chinese of the times, right, it was systemic. It was institutional. This was our U.S. government saying this this group uh, is not allowed in, right? But it also, not just a moment in time, but what are the lasting effects of that? So when you hear this being spoken of in reference to African-Americans, it's like slavery was a long time. My family never owned slaves. I don't have ill will towards African-Americans. I love all people. Well, yes, absolutely. But slavery over the centuries has deeply affected African-Americans and Jim Crow. And, uh, you know, there's a whole number of things. Redlining. Redlining, all of that. And, And I'll reference that in my own story as we come back to it. But... These are the things that has nothing to do with how I'm treating you personally or what I think about you personally, but it's stuff that was instituted systemically that deeply affects a people and how they experience life today. It's part of the cultural water that we swim in almost unknowingly Unknowingly. from the past. It might not be any decision that you made personally or like a cognitive decision that you've made or personal decision. This is the water that we swim in. Right. But if we don't acknowledge that we're in the water. Right. That, that we're not all starting from the same starting line. You know, we need to acknowledge that, that there are things that make it so that people are starting further back. And uh, the, the old, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American, you know, maxim. It's not true for all people. Like not all people were able to pull up those bootstraps and have the same results. I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said like, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have bootstraps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So going back to my story, they come back post-1882 and were met with a, you cannot come in there uh, at the harbor in Kauai. But he was rich, and he was able to hire an American lawyer, and we've got all that paperwork, which is amazing, and they're able to get back in. His paper trail ends, and the next piece of paper that we're able to find is proof of Hawaiian birth of his son, i.e. my great-grandfather. And this is him as an adult at this time, and he's trying to prove that he's a U.S. citizen because he was born uh, on Kauai. And so under occupation, it says plantation laborer. So here you have this really rich merchant who established himself on Kauai. And then you have all of that being lost and stolen and affected during those yellow peril years and ultimately leading to it being taken away so much so that my great grandfather is working the sugarcane fields. Okay. So they eventually migrate over to Oakland, California, where Redlining was going on, was instituted by our government. Uh, Redlining is? Redlining meaning uh, the the federal government put into place where certain people can live. Mm. And in areas that that were mostly ethnic minorities, a red line would be drawn around it and no federal loans would be given out to those areas. But areas that were mostly Caucasian, they were were deemed green areas. Uh, They were green lines and people could get Federally backed loans. For homes, businesses. Right, exactly. So we're deeply affected. So they come to live in Oakland, Chinatown. And what was profoundly uh, an aha moment came to me at one of my church uncle's funerals uh, several years back. And the story was being told that Uncle Bill and my dad were, there's a notoriety about them because they were the only two kids at the elementary school. When the school bell rang, all the kids 
went back into Chinatown below the school. But Uncle Bill and my dad actually walked half a block up, which was so unusual because that was technically not Chinatown, and yet they lived there. And how crazy that was because Chinese were not allowed to live outside of Chinatown. Mm. So I come to realize that my brothers and I, when I think about it, my two older brothers, are the first generation. So our family has been in America for five generations. We're the first generation that was allowed to grow up uh, outside of Chinatown, right? So you, you have a family that's been in the United States since the 1870s. Their wealth is taken away. They're forced to live, to work these plantations. They're forced to live in Chinatown. And then finally, my brothers and I, we grow up outside of Chinatown. So fast forward, um, that, that neighborhood that we grew up in is called Maxwell Park. When you look at the beginnings of Maxwell Park uh, when it was built in the 1930s, you see that it was a white-only neighborhood. So on the plat, it actually says no Negroes, no Indians, no Asiatics allowed. But by the time my parents moved in the 1960s, just th you know, 30 plus years later, ethnic minorities started to move in. Well, you look at my brother's fifth grade picture. He's seven years older than I am. It is literally one Chinese face amongst all Caucasian faces, his classmates. And then you, you fast forward seven years later to my fifth grade picture. It is literally one Asian American face and all African American. So white flight had happened out of East Oakland, went out to the suburbs. And suddenly what was once a, a nice middle-class neighborhood started to decline uh, in very, very significant ways. That's where a lot of Caucasians fled some of the uh, city centers. Right. And you hear the story time and time again throughout United States history. What they took with them was all of those resources. And what happened uh, because of redlining and other things is that property values plummeted in those areas because the white people moved out. And so that was a huge result of what happened there mm. uh, in East Oakland. That's my family's story. I started with the story earlier, but um, I'll give it at the end here. Fast forward to us living in Chicago, Western Burbs in Chicago, and my oldest son, who was in third grade, comes home one day, and he starts talking about the Americans in the class. And George, my, my wife and I look at each other, and we're like super puzzled. We're like, what is he talking about? Like, you know, quickly understand that he's talking about the white kids in the class. And, you know, class that he was in was mostly Caucasian. But he referred to them as Americans, as a third grader. Mm. So it was a teaching moment. <laughs> we uh, reminded him that he's sixth generation. Family's been in the States since the 1870s. And probably our family's been in the States longer than probably half of his classmates. You know, it was my, my conservative guess. But George, the question I ask is this. How does my little third grade boy learn that he's not American? Because we never use that kind of language. Mm. in the house. Where did he get that from? Mm. Again, we live in a racialized society and it's overt and it's covert, but uh, we need to address it. Mm. Great. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Sharing from your own heart, your own experience, your, even your own pain. Mm -hmm. We're just so grateful to have you part of this community. Love being here. Thanks for letting me tell my story. Blessings on you all. Yeah. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Garden City podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info at gardencitynw.com. 
If you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com slash give. Thanks for listening.